with me in your Bibles to Mark 12. I want to thank our musicians for playing today. It's a joy to sing together and to have the instrumentation that helps us sing out even more. We'll be looking at Mark 12 today, verses 35 to 44. Mark 12, verses 35 to 44. Follow along with me as I read. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I want to say a word that you probably haven't heard since high school. Or if you haven't made it to this point yet in your education, you may have never heard it. But I think it will help us understand this text. Homeostasis. Homeostasis. Now, I understand that it's not a very popular word, but it's a good word. It speaks of the tendency of an organism to regulate itself. For example, this happens when you get too hot. I think we know what that's like this time of year. When you get outside and then you begin to sweat, your body is trying to adjust the temperature so that it gets back to a normal state. When you get cold, which only happens in the air conditioning around here, your body begins to shiver so as to generate heat and bring you back to a normal state. Same thing's true of your blood sugar. It's homeostasis at work. When you eat too much cake or sugar... Insulin is released so as to bring the blood sugar back down where it should be. And when you don't get enough sugar or carbohydrates, you're tired, lethargic. You have a hard time moving because your body's trying to save up enough energy to get you back to where you should be. Now, while we should thank God for this process of self-regulation, it also carries with it its own set of challenges. One of these is our tendency to be mastered by mediocrity, to be enslaved to the status quo. 
I'll give you a good example of this. I'm sure at some point in your life, you know what it's like to have tried to make a huge change in your life only to backslide or burn out. Anybody ever done that before? Maybe it was something like a diet, a budget, a new commitment to be organized, a cleaning project in the house, an exercise regimen, or maybe even a simple commitment to wake up earlier. And you know what it's like to push yourself beyond where you're comfortable only to find yourself back to where you were a few weeks previous. It's homeostasis. It's the tendency for us to want to regulate We don't like extremes. We don't like anything radical. It can happen physically, emotionally, organizationally. Our body, our brain, our behavior have a built-in tendency to stay within narrow limits and to snap back when changed. This is why I say that we have a tendency to be mastered by mediocrity and enslaved to the status quo. And if this phenomenon can happen mentally and physically emotionally and organizationally, can it also happen spiritually? I think one of the clearest expressions of this would be the tendency that we have to view Jesus as special, but not supreme. Or to view following him as important, but not priority. Chances are, Some of us today here who claim to be Christians can see this in the way that we follow Jesus. We follow him through mildly challenging but mostly manageable lives in which we check in with Jesus on Sunday, give some money in the offering box every once in a while, read our Bibles as we think about it, pray before some of our meals And we may even speak up for the existence of God or the evils of abortion if the topic ever comes up. But we certainly don't want to do much more than that. That would be a little too radical. It's not just even in our following of Jesus, but it's also our conception of him. For many, Jesus is officially a wonderful man endued with divine power and who's made a positive impact upon the world. He presents us with a positive example of how to live. For others, Jesus is formally more than that. In their mind, they know that like theoretically, He is God in the flesh, He's the Savior of the world, He's the Lord of the universe, but functionally, practically, He doesn't have much impact upon their everyday living. Their life doesn't look much different than someone who thinks that Jesus is merely a good man. The point is that our culture of mediocrity conditions us to worship Jesus, but not to get too fanatical about Him. The status quo, it calls for us to live for Jesus, but to be sure to pace ourselves so that we don't get burnt out. And since this could be true for so many here today, the question now becomes, does Jesus Himself accept the status quo? Is it okay for our worship of Him to be marked by mediocrity? What does Jesus have to say about the popular, middle-of-the-road Christianity so often commended to us today? Believe it or not, our text speaks to this very issue. 
You may remember from our study last week that Jesus has just established himself as the authoritative teacher of Israel. The recognized authorities had asked questions to challenge him, and he turned his defense into offense. He silenced all the opposition, and with his enemies out of the way, Jesus in this text initiates an all-out offensive on the popular understandings of religion in that day. He specifically targets two areas. Their mild understanding of the Messiah in verses 35 to 37. And then their manageable conception of righteousness in verses 38 to 44. And today, for us, he intends, I believe, to move us beyond the bounds of mediocrity, to set us free from the enslavement of the status quo by presenting us with a higher view of himself and a deeper view of discipleship or following him. When you look at these two sections in the text, you're going to see a higher view of Jesus than what was expected, and you're going to see a deeper view of discipleship than expected. Jesus is pushing us beyond the bounds. Let's look at this first one together. Moving beyond mediocrity requires a higher view of Jesus. A higher view of Jesus. Let's look at the rather enigmatic verses 35 to 37 again. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said... How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. I don't know about you, but that's kind of hard to understand. What's going on here? What I want you to notice is that Jesus' question here and his quotation He's using these things to imply that the Messiah is even greater than they had imagined. As Jews, they had a pretty high view of the Messiah already, but he's trying to tell them, look, you may think that this coming Savior, warrior, king, is a really great person, but I want you to know he's even greater than you think he is. After a day of questions... This is the question of the day. Who is this Christ? Well, what did they think him to be? They thought that the Christ was indeed going to be the one that we read about in Psalm 110, the one who would come, rule the world, the one who would conquer all of their enemies, the one who was promised by God to initiate Israel into this superpower status forever. I mean, that would take a pretty strong and mighty guy to come and accomplish those things. But they still didn't know what he was like. They, they knew that he was just going to be a son of David. And when you hear the term son of David, especially for those with a Near Eastern background, you think, oh, okay, he's going to be a descendant of David. Therefore, he's going to be a man like David. David was not just any man, he was a great man, but he was still a man. That's what the scribes taught. They had no conception that God himself would come in flesh and be the one that would deliver them. They thought that he would be doing that from on high somewhere, but not that he would actually send himself or that he would be enrobed in flesh. 
So this Messiah figure that the scribes were teaching about, the popular lawyers of the day, the teachers, the professors, the recognized establishment said, hey, there's a great guy coming down the pike one day. We're looking forward to his coming reign. But I want you to understand, they only thought he was a guy, not God. So, Jesus is going to correct that. And he does it by going straight to the Old Testament Scriptures. I want you to notice verse 36. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared. Now let's pause here. Notice how Jesus handles the debate. Notice how he challenges the people of the day. He goes back to the Holy Spirit-inspired text in question. In case you didn't notice, please see that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the inspired Word of God. And he argues his theology on the basis of the Word. Now let me just help you a little bit with Psalm 110, the text that we read earlier. It may seem kind of strange to you, but for them, it was one of the most popular texts in the Old Testament. For us, as people who have grown up in the United States, if we know anything out of the book of Psalms, it's probably Psalm 23. For a Jew at that time, if they knew anything out of the Psalms, it was probably Psalm 110. Everybody knew this. This and Psalm 2 were the two passages that best encapsulated the coming hope of the Messiah. This was the only pillar of hope they had left as a Jewish people. They're dominated by Rome. They want somebody to come and to fix this. And Psalm 110 spoke to that. It spoke of a guy who was going to come. And notice what it says in our text. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So somebody is going to sit at the position of power to God, like to his right hand. And listen to this. God is going to then conquer all the enemies, putting them under this guy's feet. Now, if you have an older translation of Scripture, maybe it says, make your enemies a footstool. The ESV rendering is actually the most literal because it talks about literally taking a foot and putting someone under it. In the ancient Near East, when someone was conquered in battle, the symbol that the other person had lost is that the victor would place his foot on the neck of the loser. It was a symbol of subjugation, domination. And what he's saying here is that this coming Messiah, he's going to rule and God's going to destroy all his enemies. And that's how the Jews understood it. So there's no question about that. But the question is this. Who is this one that's going to do that? Who is this Lord, as the text says? Now, this will be the most mentally challenging point of the message. And I have debated and wrestled for probably longer than I need to this week on the best way to explain this to you. Because it's just hard. You've got David and you've got his Lord and my Lord, and you don't know who all these people are. So I'm going to need you to hang with me for a moment. Uh, I'm going to borrow a, a volunteer. I don't normally do this. I understand it's not junior church, but this is a little more difficult of a text to accomplish. And so hang with me. All right, Andrew, I, I didn't tell you about this ahead of time. You're my volunteer. I need you to stand like way over there. All right, thank you. That's good. No, no, not that far. All right, that's great. All right, now I'm going to do some hand motions and things because I want you to follow the text in question and I want you to see how Jesus is going to use it, okay? Now, he's going to give this quotation, but here's what's happening. Look at your text. It says, who's speaking? 
In uh, Psalm 110, it's David, we know that. David is speaking in the Holy Spirit. David said, and there's, here's David's words, The Lord, now look, watch me, the Lord, the word there for Lord in the Hebrew text of the Old Testament is Yahweh. So I am pointing up for a reason. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord. Now, who is this Lord? Well, this was the coming Messiah. They called him Lord. But the Hebrew word there is Adonai. It's another word for God. So I'm using Andrew as just a figure for this Messiah. David knew that God, Yahweh, would one day speak to one of his descendants way down the road. But notice what David calls this guy. He doesn't call him son, but he calls him in Hebrew Adonai, which is a name for God. Even the Greeks who didn't know the Hebrew Bible, they would have had a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures in Greek. And this is what it says in Greek. The kurios, Yahweh, God, said to my kurios, Greek word for God, Lord, Master, Owner, Boss. Okay? Now, hang there for a second. I haven't forgot about you, but I want to continue. All right, now you're about to find out why this matters, why I'm even pointing this out to you. Look at verse 37. Here's where Jesus redirects. David himself calls him Lord. Who's he talking about? Him. David himself calls him, that coming one, that descendant. What does he call him? He calls him Lord. He calls him Kurios. He calls him Adonai. So here's the question Jesus asks. How is he his son? Thank you, Andrew. You can be seated. And notice what the crowd does, and the great crowd heard him gladly. So here's the question. How can the Messiah merely be David's son? You catching my drift here? This is the question that Mark's posing to his readers. The question shows that this coming one is not just David's son or descendant. Fathers don't call their children or grandchildren Lord. Now, while parents often bless their kids with all kinds of names and titles of affection, typically the name or title of God isn't one of them. In my house, every night, some little insight into our world, I've made up a name for each of the kids. I don't know where this came from. I'm sure all parents do this. And I call them this special name at night. So working from like oldest to youngest, the sweet girl... There's Sweetie Buddy, and then there is Sweetie Chubby, and then <laughs> there's Sweetie Cutie, um, and then there's Sweetie Muffin. I got the last two mixed up. Now those are terms of endearment, affection. I'm sure even you as, who are grandparents in the room know what it's like to make up names for your kids. But you would never ever say Adonai, Kurios, Lord. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's asking the the popular interpretation of the day. How is it that you were to say that this Messiah is just a genealogical descendant of David when he calls him Lord? He is Lord. Who else could be identified under inspiration of the Holy Spirit as Adonai, Kurios, Lord? So with this question, he declares his identity as the divine Messiah as strongly as he can without getting him killed. Notice he doesn't answer the question. 
But he could have been accused of blasphemy, but everybody knows who he's talking about. It's so clear in the context. This Jesus is not just a son of David, he is the son of God. And the connection would have readily been made. Jesus had already been called a son of David back in chapter 10. And then he was praised as the coming one of David in chapter 11 as he was making his way into Jerusalem. And then he condemns the temple and the Jewish authorities come up to him and say, who gave you the authority to do all this? And he points back to John the Baptist's ministry and says, John the Baptist already declared me to be the coming messianic one. And then he tells a story on top of that in which he talks about these insurrectionist tenants who kill the vineyard owner's son, thereby identifying himself as the son of the vineyard owner. Everybody knows who the son of David is, who this son of God is, and he's making it as clear as he can without getting himself killed. We may not be at the zenith of his identity as the sun, but it is certainly above the clouds and there for anyone to see who is willing to open their eyes. You will hear people say in universities all around America that Jesus never claimed to be God. Hogwash. It's so clear. He's not just a good man. He's not just a great man. He's not even just a man endued with divine power. He says, I am Adonai. I am the Kurios. I am Lord. I want you to see how Jesus exceeds their high, but not nearly high enough expectations. You see how his identity breaks the bounds imposed upon normal religious figures and leaders. Do you see how he's in a category of his own? Can you see how this text stretches and strengthens our understanding of Jesus? Because we too live in a society that longs for, big word here, Christological homeostasis. All I mean by that is everybody wants Jesus to be a good guy, but not God. But if the text is true at all, he is more than that. The secularist will say that Jesus was merely a good man. Even our beloved Albert Einstein described Jesus as a luminous figure, the Nazarene, whose personality pulsates in every word in the Gospels. That's a pretty high view of Jesus, don't you think? For Einstein, a Jew, to give those high remarks of Jesus is pretty good. But it's not good enough. It's not just the secularist, but it's even the occultist. There are so many today who claim to be Christians, Christ followers, who would say that, well, and we know that Jesus was a great man, but um, he's not, he hasn't always been God. He became a God. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a better man, but he's certainly not God. I mean, just take the Dalai Lama, for example. He called Jesus an enlightened teacher. Mahatma Gandhi actually described Jesus as a beautiful example of the perfect man. Or you just read just the basic tenets of Jehovah's Witness or Mormon teaching. They give Jesus some really high titles and praise. But they'll never call him eternal God. He became that. He was created as that. But Jesus teaches of Himself that He is the eternal, everlasting God. It's a different category altogether. What are they trying to do? 
They're telling us, look, it's okay to have a high view of Jesus, but let's not get too radical about it. He's not God. And I think that this could happen even practically. I think people who are Christians who say, yep, you know what? I would sign on to the Nicene Creed. I believe that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. I think sometimes we can live as if he's not that. We can see Jesus as merely some kind of powerful helper to help me accomplish my agenda, but not the Lord of the universe. So what Jesus is doing here is presenting us with a view of himself that is higher than we could ever imagine. My question for you is this. How is your view of Jesus? When you hear the name Jesus Christ, do you think, meh, or Messiah? Do you think, good man, or God? Are you enslaved to the status quo? Were you energized as you see him as the sovereign Lord of the universe? Lest this seem very theoretical and impractical to you, I want to warn you of something. Please hear me. If you haven't heard anything else I say and you don't listen to anything else I say, hear this, this most important thing today. Your view of Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell. Your view and the, the people that you love, their view of Jesus is the difference between heaven and hell. 1 Corinthians 12.3 makes it clear that no man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the difference. And this matters both formally and officially and functionally and practically. Formally, what I mean by this is that you have to have the right understanding of Jesus. If you say, I am going to follow Jesus, I'm going to live for Him, I am a Christian, I am saved, I'm going to heaven when I die, but you reject the fact that Jesus was who He said He was, Son of David, Son of God, you are not a Christian. It matters. Your theology, what you understand about Jesus, really does matter. What your, your neighbors as kind as they may be, and as great as they may dress, if they deny that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, they are not Christians. This is a big deal. This is why, by the way, we ask every person who's joining Faith Bible Church, who is Jesus? For those of you who joined earlier, that we made that a big point. We not only ask, what is the gospel, but we ask everybody, who is Jesus? And people look at us funny, they're like, well, I know who Jesus is. It matters who you think Jesus is. I know that some of you who grew up in Sunday school and church your whole life think you've got this thing nailed. But there are a ton of people, especially in this area, who do not understand that. And it matters for their eternity. So there's a formal part of this that matters, but there's also a functional part of this that matters. A, a practical part of this. This is Discipleship 101. There is no following Jesus until you understand who He is. I want you to know that He's certainly more than an owner or a boss or a ruler or a king, but He is at least that. You understand what I'm saying? If you're going to say that Jesus is Lord, theoretically, shouldn't that impact you practically? Like if He's like the one that owns it all, that rules it all, like doesn't that like place some demands or obligations on your life and mine? 
I guess my greater concern is actually for the person who has no problem sighing the historic creeds and confessions of the church, saying that Jesus is 100% God and man. My greater problem is the person who would sign that but live differently. As if he has no bearing on their life whatsoever. People who live as the captains of their own fate, the masters of their own soul. When you say that Jesus is Lord, this isn't just something you fill out on a theology quiz. This is something that impacts how you live every day of your life. So Jesus here blows mediocrity right out of the water as he prevents, uh, presents this higher view of himself. But that's not all. He not only stretches and strengthens our view of himself, but also our view of what it means to follow him. We could say that he also moves us beyond mediocrity by presenting us with a deeper view of discipleship. Moving beyond mediocrity requires a deeper view of discipleship. You see this in verses 38 to the end of the chapter. Now let me define my terms here because some of you are thinking, well, discipleship, what does that mean? Look, all I mean by discipleship is following Jesus, living for Jesus. All right, if one is doctrinal, <laughs> like what I believe about Jesus, discipleship is duty. It's how I behave in light of who Jesus is, okay? All I'm talking about is our response to him. And Jesus is going to show us here that responding to him appropriately is deeper than you could ever imagine. And he does it with two pictures. And I'm going to stimulate your imagination again, please. But don't worry, no volunteers needed this time. I just want you to imagine two huge pictures. I mean, with today's technology and 12 megapixel cameras, I mean, you could actually blow up a picture like to go up on a billboard somewhere. I want you to imagine a massive picture sitting on this side of the room. And this represents the popular understanding of righteousness, living for God in that day. All right, then over here, another picture, the same size. And it's a different view of what it means to live for God, to live righteously, ethically, to be pious, to be godly, whatever. So there's the popular one. This is going to be the impopular picture. Now, what you need to note to put together these last few verses in Mark chapter 12 is that Jesus is giving a contrast of two pictures. The first picture is the popular one, and it's represented by none other than the scribes. They were the picture of righteousness and godliness and faithfulness in that day. And notice the description of them in verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So go ahead and know where Jesus is going. He's going to present the popular picture of righteousness and then spray paint all over it, condemned. Actually, condemned greatly. Now, you need to get that when people thought of godly people in that day, the scribes are it. If you've been reading Mark, you're a little prejudiced because you think, oh, these guys, they're dirtbags. <laughs> but the normal person of the day, they love the scribes. I mean, after all, they just looked so good. They, they 
I mean, you didn't know their heart, but at least on the outside, I mean, they wore some really special fancy clothes, these long white linen garments that signified their high status. It marked them all from the normal people who wore different colors. These people only wore white, just to show how special they were. They were respected religious leaders, and when they were walking through the marketplace, imagine something like a farmer's market, people would literally, if they were sitting, stand up, and it would be respectful for them to greet a scribe with the terms, Lord, Master, Rabbi, Teacher. At church, at synagogue, they were the cream of the crop. In fact, they were so special that in a normal Jewish synagogue gathering, everybody would sit on the floor. And at the very front of the room would be a chest or an ark in which was contained the Torah, the scroll, and they would read to everybody the Scriptures, kind of like we do here. But what I want you to imagine is the normal folks all sit on the floor, and guess where the scribes sit? They sit on a bench right in front of the scroll so that anytime people are listening to the Word of God and hearing it read, guess who they're looking at? scribes you talk about being a poster child they were poster child i mean like they sat in front of everybody they were the people that you wanted to have at your parents 50th wedding anniversary party because it would have gave the thing some religious significance and status this is what jesus is saying externally they just looked so good but he gives us an indication that their motives weren't all that pure notice how he throws in in verse 40 who devour widows houses And for a pretense, make long prayers. Now this is the part that nobody could see. These religious men of respectability would actually leverage their their trust, their credibility, so as to financially take advantage of those who just trusted them. Since they worked for charity, people actually viewed it as a pious thing to give money to a scribe. And so widows especially who no longer had any resources or nobody, no family to spend that money on, they found themselves often very cozy with them so as to get more of their money. Even their prayers, which were supposed to be used for the glory of God and the good of people, became a platform for greater aggrandizement and applause. And Jesus says, not only will they be condemned, but they will receive the greater condemnation of God. Now, as I think about this expose of the popular review of religion, I'm reminded of the old saying, all that glitters isn't gold. Anybody ever heard that before? You know where it came from? I don't either. There's a huge debate. (laughs) But we do know that at least part of it came from when people are panning for gold, they often find pyrite, not gold. Nicknamed fool's gold. Maybe you remember that from your trip to the museum as a kid in elementary school. I was so excited by that. They're selling gold. (laughs) And it's so shiny and it looks so good. I still have a piece of fool's gold in a little box of stuff that I should probably throw away. (laughs) But it's not gold. It's worthless. It may reflect substantially more light than authentic gold does, but it's nothing but a rock. The interesting thing, though, is that pure gold, when you're mining for it, Raw gold, uh, when you see it, it appears dull and it doesn't glitter or shine at all. Be gone with the pictures of gold bars and fork knocks that you can see your reflection off of. They just don't show up that way. It's just kind of earthy. 
And Jesus discloses the futility of externals and reminds us that righteousness, piety, whatever you want to call it, is a matter of the heart. It cannot be determined by what's on the outside. It just can't. I warn you, brothers, sisters, friends, visitors, beware of assuring yourself on the basis of externals. Spiritual health is way more than skin deep. If I were to describe, describe, just from an external appearance in today's culture, having no, you know, no capacity to look into his heart, this is what he would look like. I'm going to describe, I'm just using the same terms that Jesus uses. Listen to this. Notice, this is the one that's greatly condemned. This is our picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, at least the popular one. And this is what it would look like in today's culture. They would wear nice clothes. They would be respected by ordinary people. They would enjoy prominence in communities of faith. They would receive recognition at community events. And they would engage in public expressions of piety like prayer. Now I'm not trying to like, Make you think of too much, but I mean, I'm just like, off the top of my head, that's like 90% of us. Yet, here's the difference. Even though we could all look the same on the outside, here's the difference. In the end, they are ravenously consumed with self, even willing to take advantage of others to get what they want. That's the difference. Jesus clues us in. The question isn't about what they look like on the outside because all of us like to look like normal, respectable people. The question is what they want on the inside. Are they consumed with self, even willing to take advantage of others to get it? Or are they consumed with the Savior? Be warned. God hates all forms of impiety and unrighteousness, but He especially hates hypocritical ones. They receive abundant judgment. So discipleship, following Jesus, living the Christian life, etc., whatever you want to call it, it's deeper than many imagine. So we know that the popular picture that we described over here, this isn't it. So if it's not something that can be quantified or seen externally, what is it? If we know that this is going to be the right picture... What exactly is Jesus looking for? For Mark turns from the fool's gold on the one hand and shows us the real thing here on the other. There's a positive example of piety and righteousness and it comes from a most unexpected source. Look at verse 41 in your Bibles. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. Now get what's going on here. It seems that Jesus sat down by these these offering chests, these collection boxes, I guess kind of like our own. And everybody was giving their required and free will gifts. That's just the way it worked. You gave at the temple. There was no online giving. You, you, you did it there at the location. And he's watching, and, and this is weird. I just think this would be strange. Imagine if one of you just parked it out there one Sunday and just watched everybody like put money in the box. But Jesus has already shown himself to be the Lord of the temple. He can sit wherever he jolly well pleases, and he can watch people do whatever they wants to do. And so he does it. He parks it right by the money box, and he sees the rich people dropping in huge gifts. Now, some of you are thinking, how does he know that they're large gifts? Well, think about it. It's an economy based on a gold standard. That passed us in America long, long ago. 
All we now have is paper. That's not even worth what it's printed on. But it used to be that like how much you had could be told because you had that value in your hand. So if you had a lot of gold, you had a lot of money. If you had a little bit of gold, you only had a little bit of money. <laughs> so naturally for these, it's easy to see who's, who's dropping the big bucks. There's no checks. There's no cash. And even the coins, the bigger they were, the more valuable they were. And so you could tell when a guy comes slinging his big old money bag, you can hear it jingling and jangling, and he drops it in the box. Huge gift. And then somebody's being a cheapskate, you just hear a few little pennies scratching together, and it makes a light little tink, tink, tink. (laughs) You could see it. You could hear it. Jesus is watching. But what's interesting, though, he doesn't make any comment. He says he sees a bunch of people dropping in a ton of money, and he doesn't say anything. Now, you need to know that in this culture, the rich were considered as uniquely favored by God. It's as if Jesus is looking for something else. Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Notice how she's described. A poor widow. Um... Strike one, strike two. When it comes to what people expected to be on the appropriate picture of piety, it wouldn't have been a poor person, and no offense, ladies, it wouldn't have been a woman or a widow. That's just the way they thought. I'm not saying it's right. That's the way they thought. Like, I can't imagine that. We have this tendency to think in our society, well, the people who are ultra-rich, you know, they're corrupt, they stole and cheat to get their money, and that kind of thing. No, 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 no. In that culture, it was actually the wealthy who were considered the pious ones because they didn't have to cheat or lie or steal to get their money. They had a job. So people looked at people with money and said, wow, they're blessed by God. People who didn't have money, oh, well, they must be tempted to cheat and lie and steal. They looked down on them. They were morally inferior. They they wouldn't have been, a, a poor widow would not have been the poster girl for piety. And notice not only how she's described, but what she gives. The Bible even describes it as two small copper coins. Now, in Hebrew currency, these were the smallest coins in circulation, and they were less than one one one-hundredth of a denarius. You may remember from our teaching last week that a denarius was a day's wage. So let's translate this into modern money for you. Let's assume that minimum wage is $10 and that someone works $8 a day. How much are they going to make in a day? 80. Thank you. (laughs) Good job. All right, now. You take that, and you know that this is less than one one-hundredth of that. How much is this person making? Now, don't worry, it gets complicated here. But the modern equivalent would be something close to 15 cent. 15 cent! That's what she gave. And for his non-Jewish readers, this is interesting to me, for the non-Jewish readers, he even translates this currency and amount into Roman coins. And he's saying, look, two of these Jewish copper pennies would have actually made one Roman, the Greek word is quatrin, which was the smallest denomination in Rome. He wants the Romans to understand and the Jews to understand that this is a very meager and insignificant amount of money. Are you getting the picture? Notice what happens in verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, Remember, that's when he's, he's actually getting their attention with a judicial pronouncement. Solemnly, I swear to you, this poor widow has put in more 
than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. There's something about this almost imperceptible gift that awakens our Lord's interest so much so that He summons His followers to Him and then solemnly swears that this woman has given more than them all. I mean, Jesus had to have been looking very carefully. These two small coins, they're about this big. She drops them in. And He's like, guys, guys, come here, come here. Notice this. See what's happening here. Here's our picture. Everything about this woman screams less, yet Jesus says she has done more. What's he say? The point is that he's using this example of giving to point to the heart that God is really looking for. He's pointing to the heart that God is really looking for. He wants to show us what it looks like to be a worshiper of God and a follower of Jesus. Despite the physical size of their gifts and the loud noise it made being deposited into the offering box, the rich people were giving their leftovers. They walked away and they were still rich. But in contrast, notice what this woman does. She gave, notice these things in the text, out of her poverty, she put in everything she had, put in all she had to live on. That last little phrase is fascinating in the original language because interpreted literally, it would read, she has deposited her whole life. Her whole life. This is the example of righteousness. This is the true expression of piety. This is the heart of a true follower of Jesus, the appropriate expression of discipleship. Real Christians respond to God with their whole lives, fake Christians, imposters, ones who receive the greater condemnation. They give the spare change. When we look at this picture carefully, we see a lot of things become very clear for us. One, we see the extravagant love called for in the great commandment. Remember that? Jesus just told on it. He says, look, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. What did that mean? Love Him exclusively, love Him extravagantly. What did she do? She loved Him extravagantly. That's not all, but it also explains something else that we've been wondering about in the book of Mark, where Jesus keeps saying, those who save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And you're like, what does that mean? What does that look like? And then you look at this picture and you see, here's someone who lost her life. In this life. To show that she truly gained it in the life to come. The only appropriate response to Jesus, the only acceptable expression of piety is 100% commitment. That is what the Lord Jesus, if you recognize Him to be the Lord of the universe, the God of eternity, this is what He deserves. The all-in response Jesus commends here is none other than the classic difference between involvement and commitment. How many of you have ever heard the difference between involvement and commitment before? Listen carefully. This is some wise stuff here. The difference between involvement and commitment is like an eggs and ham breakfast. The chicken was involved. The pig was committed. Some of you will get that later. Do you see the difference between the two? One gives God the spare change of his or her time and treasure and talent, and the other gives God everything. 
Contrary to popular belief, true Christianity is consumed with Christ. Here's a question. Is Christ your life or is He just a part of your life? Are you involved with Him or are you committed to Him? Notice how Paul speaks in Colossians 3 and Philippians 1. You write these down, don't turn there, but look at them later. Colossians 3, 3 3-4. He says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, and notice this, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What does he assume about the Colossian Christians that he's writing to? That Christ is their life. He's not writing to a bunch of preachers in Colossae. He's not writing to a bunch of monks in Colossae. He's writing to everyday, ordinary Christians like you and me. And for them, Christ is their life. In Philippians 1, verses 20 to 24, here he is, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. And notice what he says. It is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then here's those famous words. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And notice how he explains it. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. What does he say? I'll be committed to the gospel work. Yet which I shall choose, I shall not tell, because I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to be depart. To, be, to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. For Christians, Christ is their life. Let me make this a little more concrete. These are just good, open, honest questions to ask yourself. What do you live for? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Why do you work long hours and hard days? Or even if you're retired or you're not yet in a career, where is it all headed for you? What's it for? We're going to flesh this out more and circle back on Wednesday night. But for now, let me just give you a couple of areas you can evaluate. Or three, actually. That you can evaluate with another believer. Somebody that you know is in this category. Or you can do it by yourself. I suggest you do it with somebody else. Look at your calendar. Why are you so busy? We're all busy. All of our calendars will include things like work and family and church. But my question is, why do you work? Is it so that you can get things that will make you look good or feel good? Or is it so that you can honor God through providing for your family, not being a financial burden to other believers? Is it so that you can have a platform for gospel influence to help further the gospel in other places? Here's another one, to-do list. All right, it's not just the calendar. It's not just the stuff that shows up on our phones and reminds us we need to be in certain places at certain times. But then there's these unique expenditures of energy regularly throughout the week, stuff that we say, I've got to get this done. Why do you have to get it done? What is it that you have to get done? Why do you work so hard? You should work hard, but why? Do we take on responsibility out of a passion for Jesus? Or is it merely for a pat on the back? For our, from our friends, our family, our co-workers? Is it to get the paycheck so we can spend things on self and make our lives more comfortable here and now? Or is it so that we can get a paycheck to not only support ourselves, but also be a blessing to other brothers and sisters in Christ who need it and also advance the gospel in other places? And then here's the last one. It's not only calendar, to-do list, but the one that's here in the text. And notice the angle I've taken on this. I haven't made it the point, but it is a good expression of where your heart is, is money. How you spend your money. Where does it all go? 
I hope that everybody in this room, by the way, is buying groceries, paying bills, saving for retirement, buying gifts for your family, giving to a local church. But, but my question for you is, why do you do those things? Do you see it as an investment in the kingdom? Or is it only about you and self? But let's be really clear about something, especially if you ever listen to anybody preach on the TV or a radio or internet about this text. This passage is not about you emptying your physical bank account for God. You didn't hear me say that? You won't ever hear me say that? You should run away from anybody who ever does say that. That's not what the text is about. The text is about money being not a leading indicator, but a lagging indicator. The way that we spend our money shows our heart. And this woman had a heart fully devoted to God, even because it was shown that she wanted to spend everything for Him. It's interesting, though, that the piety of that day, the bad teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, led this woman to believe that the best way she could give her money was actually to give it all to the temple establishment. Some guys try to argue this in more depth, and if you want to talk about it later, we can. But I'm not even saying that was probably the best use of money, but her heart is what was on display in making this gift to the temple. And our heart is on display. The mirror and the insight, the window into our heart can be seen in our bank statement. What are we spending money on? And why, there's the better question, why are we spending it? Please don't think that I'm saying that if you give 15% to the church, you walk out of here and you say, you know what, as long as I give 30% to the church, I'm in better shape. No! The point is that 100% of it is for God. Some of it you will choose to invest directly into a local church. Some of it you will choose to invest in your family. Some of it you will choose to invest in friends. Some of it you will choose to invest in retirement. But all of it will be for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Sometimes we fail to connect that it all belongs to Him. If we say that He's Lord, even that He owns this. He owns our money. So, time, to-do list, treasure, it's all His. It's all His. This is why the hymn writer, Isaac Watts, penned those memorable words when I survey the wondrous cross. Maybe you've heard the hymn, maybe you haven't. But I'm going to read you a few verses and I want you to note how he ties a radically high view of the person and work of Christ to a radically deep response to Him. Are you ready? This is where theology, I mean, excuse me, our hymns teach us theology. The first verse. Watch writes, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.
There is no status quo. There's no mediocrity in living for Jesus. Jesus' doctrine, His teaching exceeds the expectations of our society. He's calling our view of Him to be higher, our response to Him to be deeper. And I'll close with two questions for you to ask yourself or someone you love or care for this week. Here they are. The first question, how high is your view of Jesus? Is He the Lord of glory who took on flesh to die for your sin, rise again, showing that the payment was made and is ascended into heaven, ruling and reigning, not only the world in general, but your life in particular? That's His demand. A higher view of Jesus. Question two. How deep is your discipleship? This is basic. I mean, I say honestly, are you just committed or involved? Commitment, everything, it's all His. Or just, huh, I'll give Him a few hours on Sunday. I'll check in with Him in the morning, read my Bible for a few minutes, and then the rest of the day is mine. Or you just see everything as belonging to Him. Let me pray for God to break us from the bonds of mediocrity. And then let's commit to do that together by closing in song, singing, When I Survey. So I'll close this in prayer, then Phil will come and lead us. Lord, it's too easy in this culture, in this society, to just go with the status quo. To live as if You're just a great man, but not the Lord of the universe. To follow you in a way that's manageable, but not radical. Or as we are confronted with a text like this again, where it puts us as a church body in a unique spot, because there are some here today who keep telling themselves that they are Christians, and yet they don't live under your lordship. They have not responded to you radically and presented themselves to you. So I pray that you would convict them. But it's very possible today, Lord, that there are also some in here who have done that, but they do it imperfectly. (laughs) Or they have presented themselves, themselves to you fully, and finally they recognize that you are Lord, but they just don't always live that way. Lord, that's me. May we remember as we leave that that's what you died for. (laughs) And that we're trusting that you'll just continue to grow us in our capacity or to serve you, to live for you, to love you. Or for those of us who are so frustrated that our passions and our practices aren't what they should be, I pray that we would find solace and rest and motivation in what you've accomplished for us in the cross and that it would make a practical impact in our lives this week. So Lord, save those who are lost and encourage those who love You and recognize You as Lord. May they more practically this week live out Your Lordship in every facet of their life. May I do the same. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.